feel free to have a seat. And as you do, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. Thank you to Lindsay, our worship team. Thanks Bubba and Greg and all, all those that are on staff and volunteers. Many of you in this room, as Bubba mentioned, have had impact in the lives of the students on the stage and family. Uh, it's unbelievable to see that site this morning. And as I was looking at all those faces and hearing all their introductions and where they're going to go, I was thinking about the text that I'm going to be teaching this morning to you. And I thought, man, God is good to give us a text that's so relevant as we visually see him sending out these young men and young women for such a time as this. And that's the point in the story of Esther that we get to dive into this morning. And I want to start off by relaying a scene from one of my favorite movies, For some of you, it may be one of your favorite books, but The Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien wrote this, and then, of course, um, Peter Jackson turned it into a series of movies. Many of you have watched these, and there's a scene in the first movie that I've thought about all week long as I thought about this idea of for such a time as this in the story of Esther. So let me recap what's happened. Frodo, the little hobbit, has been given an unbelievably hard task. He's got to take this evil ring of power that sort of encapsulates all that's wrong in the world, and it can't get in the wrong hands, otherwise it's, you know, it's curtains for everything good. And he's got to take it to the only place that this ring of power can be destroyed, the fires of Mount Doom. And he's got to go on this long journey fraught with terror and peril, and there's evil things chasing him. And he's about halfway, or maybe not even halfway through his journey, and he has this conversation with the wizard Gandalf, you know, his friend, this wise wizard. And, you know, Frodo's just reflecting a little bit. You can just tell he's carrying this burden, and he's honest with Gandalf about the toll that it's taking on him. And here's what Frodo says. He says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. I can identify with that sometimes in my life. I mean, all of us can. There are moments in your life where you would say, I wish this hadn't happened. You know, this broken relationship, this illness, this struggle, this lost dream, whatever it is, I wish none of this would happen. I, I wish this hadn't come to me. Why am I having to carry this burden? So Frodo says, I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf, the wizard, has this brilliant reply. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. As I thought about that question or that statement, I thought about this. That's kind of the big idea of this Esther story right? As we, the people of God, retell the story that's been told for thousands of years, the people of God, the story of Esther. The bottom line of the story is what will you do with the time that has been given you? That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up if you haven't already. We're in Esther chapter 4, and here's how I want to play this out. I, I want to invite you to see some things kind of exegetically in the text. In other words, I want to drill down and kind of talk about some background, some things. But I also want to invite you to step into the narrative. Because here's the thing about the scripture. There's all kinds of different genres that the scripture is written in. But the most prominent genre of all the Bible is narrative. It's story. And this happens to be a particularly well-written story. And by the way, a story that's well told, well written doesn't mean it's just a story and it's not true. No, we believe this is historical. There's good reasons to believe this is historical. But that also doesn't mean that it's not told with an art. 
And Esther in particular, of almost all the stories in the Old Testament, is told in an artful way. And what art does in us is it invites us to participate. It invites us in. And what I believe God would do, the Holy Spirit would do, is he re-speaks this text to us this morning, the text that he authored. I believe the Holy Spirit would invite us into the narrative. And so the question that I when it just have bouncing around in your head for the next 35 minutes or so is this same idea that Gandalf sort of posed to Frodo. And the question is this, what will you do with the time that is given you? I'd ask that of the seniors that are here with us this morning. What, what will you do with the time that is given you? I, I, I'm asked the parents that are now going to have different households, a little more emptiness. What will you do with the time that is given to you. I'd ask those of you that are in different places in your journey, some in places of pain, some in places of joy, some of you have new jobs, some of you are, would like to get out of your job, some of you don't have a job, some of you have families that are hurting and broken, others of you just had new life entering it. What will you do with the time that God has allotted to you, that he has given to you? So we'll walk through this text, and uh, we're going to speed through the first 12 verses, um, and then I really want to settle in on the last two, or verse, verses 13 and 14, the last two verses of our passage this morning, because I think this is where our story can intersect, the story of Scripture. So let me begin by reading verses 1 through 4 of Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Let me pause there just for a moment. If you remember what has been done, the evil leader Haman has convinced the king of Persia to pass a law that on a certain date in the future, all the Jews across the entire empire will be slaughtered. That's what has been done. And this is the response of Mordecai. And you'll see the response of the community of faith. Verse 2, he, Mordecai, went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Now, there are a couple of things going on in these first few verses. First, we have to talk a little bit about this public display of grief, right? The ancient culture, this was commonplace. In biblical culture, you read about it all over the place. Sackcloth, ashes. Have you ever, you ever asked what sackcloth is? It's actually a coarse material, uh, different kinds of materials, often made from goat hide, and they would literally put these on them, or they would sit on them. Talk about uncomfortable, right? This is not comfortable garment, usually black or dark in color, and then they would take ash. They would, they, they would, they would burn some substance to create the ash. They'd take the ash from the fire. They'd put it on their head, and they would smear it over their body. So, you know, uh, the only image I could think of was from Mary Poppins, the chimney sweeps. When they come out, the chimneys are all covered in the soot. You know, this is what this would have looked like. And then they would wail. So they got a visual representation and you have an audible representation. Now, why do they make this big deal of, of grieving? And, and by the way, it wasn't just in moments like this where the whole nation was at stake or the whole people group was at stake. It was in personal loss that they would do this. If someone has died or a son has, you know, re rejected his heritage and left home or other other means like this we read about in scripture why would they do this what they're communicating visually and audibly is that there is something broken there is something wrong 
there's something here that is not the way it is supposed to be. And if you think about that from a theological standpoint, isn't that just true about the world we live in? Isn't it broken? I mean, read the news. You don't even have to read the news. Just examine your own life. There are things there that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And I would say, in a sense, Christians, we have sort of lost the idea of how to grieve well. Because I think what we've kind of adapted, just by way of application, we've kind of adapted this idea that good Christians don't feel hurt. They don't feel pain. They just keep a smile on their face and say, God is good. God is in control. God is good. God is in control. But things right now are not the way they're supposed to be. We should know this more than most people because we've read Genesis 1 and 2 where you have a perfect garden and we've read Revelation 21 and 22 where you have a perfect new creation and we know that we stand in the middle where things aren't yet the way they're supposed to be. We're in this brokenness. We're in this gap, this liminal space and we oftentimes need to grieve when things come our way that need to be grieved over. Scripture says there's a time to feast and a time to mourn. So the people are in sackcloth and ashes. Guess who's not? The king. The king. Look at verse 2 again. This is a fascinating little insight. No one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Here you have a king that's basically said, in my palace, around my sphere of influence, you may not grieve. You may not mourn. You may not wear sackcloth. In other words, I make the rules, I make the laws, and I'm going to draw a line of happiness and good thoughts, and everything is right and good in my kingdom. Everything is happy. Not the case. You see, he has separated himself from the people. In fact, you see this, the last verse in chapter 3, Michael talked about it last week. While the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion Leadership lesson, by the way, for those of you that have influence and authority, you dare not separate yourselves from the real world, right? The sackcloth and ashes, which is a a healthy, at times, part of creation. You can't just draw a circle around yourself and say, everything's happy, everything's good in my zone. I I don't want to hear your problems. We cannot do that. Poor leadership at play. Not only poor leadership, but it's an opportunity, I think, grieving is for us as a people of God to not only grieve, but grieve with hope. Because Mordecai doesn't just sit in his ashes. He is going to do the only thing he can do to save his people, which is to make a request of the queen, whom he happens to have a close relationship with, right? Right? So we grieve, yes, but we grieve with hope because we know that although things are not the way they're supposed to be, it won't always be that way. We have a Savior and he will come again and restore things to rightness. So we distinguish ourselves from the world in how we grieve. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. That's the idea in these first four verses. Let's continue and and see how the text unfolds. Verse five, Esther summoned Hathak, from the king's eunuch. So this is her trusted servant whom the king had appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai, learn what this was and why it was. Uh, Apparently Esther didn't have all the information here. She's having to go to Mordecai to find out what's happening in the palace. Isn't that ironic? So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Isn't that sick? This man is giving a huge sum of money so that a people group that he has a grudge against will be wiped off the planet. 
Verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king and employ his favor and plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Interesting to note how wide the chasm is between Esther up in the palace, shielded from the real world, so to speak, and Mordecai down in the city. They can't even speak face to face. You have this go-between with the servants. Again, because the king would not allow Mordecai, at least while he's grieving, into the presence of the palace. And apparently the queen couldn't leave. Here's the thing about this. One down in the city grieving, one up in the palace, oblivious, at least initially. God's going to use them both. He's going to use them both. Let's read in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live, And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. You get an interesting picture of what it would have been like to be the king of Persia in those days. This woman's living in fear. She's not free to leave the palace. She's not free to have her own thoughts. She's connected to this man that she can't even talk to. She can't even approach unless he orders her. And if she dares to go to her husband... If she hasn't been summoned, her life will be cut off. And, of course, she has seen that happen. The last queen was deposed because she dared to stand up to this king. Esther is in a predicament. I think there's a couple of things that we can learn as we think about this dilemma that Esther's in. One is it's very understandable. Her life's at stake if she does what Mordecai wants. But secondly, I think she's realizing that her own identity is on the line. Let me explain what I mean by that. Esther was a survivor. You know, she wasn't ambitious. She didn't get to the throne through ambition. She got to the throne by being the last girl standing. Like she was plucked out of a good, safe environment with Mordecai. You know, she was an orphan. Mordecai had raised her. From, against her will, she was thrown in this harem and then they have to do all these things. A year, this year-long beauty pageant, and they, they go into the king, they please the king, and the woman that pleases the king the most gets the prize of being the queen. That's not a prize. We don't know what happened to all those other hundreds of women that lost the beauty pageant, but I can guarantee you it wasn't anything good. Esther's a survivor. It's who she is. That's her identity. How has she survived? By only doing what the king wants. What is Mordecai asking her to do? Only the opposite of that. (laughs) Only to go against the grain of every instinct in her body as a survivor. A lot of application for you and me. I've got things in my life that I hold as, as part of my identity. You know, we all care about different things. Some of us get identity from wealth or position or status. Some of you get identity from your kids. Some of us get identity from gifts or abilities that we have. There's all a few things in our life that we'd say, God, you can take everything else away, but don't take this thing. I cannot open my hands to your plan, Father, when it comes to this thing. It's too important to me. This is what Mordecai is asking Esther to do. Open her hands 
to her very life, her very identity as a survivor, put it all on the line for the sake of a greater cause. It's no easy thing, not at all. Well, let's see what Mordecai's response is to Esther because it's actually brilliant. Verse 13, And Mordecai told them, the servants, to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Here's why this is just so, so smart. Mordecai does three things, three things. Number one, he reminds Esther of who she really is. She's Hebrew. In verse 13, don't imagine that you, even though you're in the king's palace, can't escape any more than any of the other Jews. You see, he's saying, Esther, yes, you're the queen. Esther, I know there's these laws. that I know you've been living in these and you've had to submit and do whatever the king wants, but your true identity is not the queen of Persia. Your true identity is not a survivor. Your true identity is not even found in your beauty. Your true identity is you're one of the people of God. You're a Jew. You were placed into a Jewish family through no choosing of your own. You and I have no voice in our heritage place where we're born, the family that we're born into, yet God's doing something with it. We need to be reminded sometimes who we really are as the people of God. That's our true identity. So number one, he reminds her who she is. Number two, he reminds her who's in charge. Beautiful phrase in verse 14. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise from another source, right? Who's that other source? Right, what would that other place be that it could come from? It's got to be God. There's no other place that this could come from. But he's, he's, the faith of Mordecai says it will come. You see, he's reminding her who's in charge. And it ain't the king. And it's not Haman. It's not even Esther, you see. Someone else is in charge. And then, of course, he ends with this incredible question, you know, Who knows? Who knows how you might be involved in this? Here's what he's doing with that question. He is inviting Esther to look beyond herself and see a greater purpose at play. I want to camp out here for a few minutes because this is what you and I need. I actually think we need the invitation to see past our stuff, see past our daily grind, to see past our dreams and our hopes and actually see that all those things are tied into a bigger purpose. There's a bigger narrative at play. In fact, I've come to appreciate the fact that in the book of Esther, God's name is never directly mentioned. Why do I appreciate that? Because I feel like that in my own life sometimes. Right? I've never encountered the burning bush. I've never seen an angel. I've never heard God's audible voice. You know, maybe you have. I never have. The scripture says we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, we are to literally move in a direction that's aligned with things that we cannot see more than the things that we can see that are right in front of us that we can touch and feel and hear. And this is what Mordecai is doing. By asking this question, he's inviting Esther. Esther, would you have eyes to see there's more going on than your personal survival? 
Would you have eyes to see that who knows God may be up to something? There may be a reason for all of this. Who knows? He's about to move in a powerful way through you, Esther. Would you open yourself up to see things you cannot see with natural eyes? Who knows, he says. By the way, the question is more powerful than a statement would have been, isn't it? Uh, He could have said, Esther, God placed you there for such a time as this. But he does something better than that. He says, who knows? Because here's the thing. When you ask a good question, you invite somebody in. You engage their brain. You engage their imagination. And so Mordecai asks the question, and then he just stands back and waits to see what Esther will do. Now, we're not going to read this morning what Esther does. We're going to get to that next week. But I want us to ask the question of us this morning as well. Who knows? Who knows what God is up to in your life? Who knows? What is it, as Gandalf would say to Frodo, you know, he would essentially say, Frodo, wouldn't you believe, wouldn't you believe that there's more to the story here? Wouldn't you believe, Frodo, that there's something going on, there's a reason for all of this, and all you have to do, Frodo, is decide how to use the time you've been given? And that's the question for you and me. How will you use the time that you have been given? I want to give you a couple of principles or ideas for maybe how to discern God's purposes. Honestly, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, I actually appreciate the fact that Mordecai has some humility here. Mordecai's not assuming to know God's purpose. He's just saying, who knows? I think that's the posture that you and I should take sometimes. Who knows? Um, I know people in my life uh, that, that they think God, you know, they, they put on their socks in the morning. Like, well, I, I chose these socks because God told me to wear blue socks today. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but everything in their life is like, you know, God, you know, God's at work, God's at work, God's at work. Great, you know, good for you. I don't quite know what to do with the sock thing. Like, that's just a little bit, you know, I, I operate a little bit differently than that. But then I know people, on the other hand, they don't attribute God's work to anything in their life. Well, if you really were to you know, give them a truth serum, it's their might, it's their smarts, it's their power, it's their hard work. You know, they, they could have been saved from certain death and they'd say something like, well, I guess I got lucky. How do you know? How do you know? Where do you live? on the spectrum. Do you tend more over here? Do you tend more over here? I'm not telling you what's right and wrong. I think we need to ask the question. Who knows? What's the answer to the question? Who knows? Like, who actually knows? Only one. Only one. I'd say, let's ask him. Here are a couple of principles that I think as we ask, as we pray, God can use in our lives to direct us to maybe how he is at work in ways that we can't see. Principle number one, God's work is always aligned with his purposes. We know that's true. You see that all over scripture. Proverbs 19.21, great little verse to memorize, by the way. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. There are no accidents in God's work. Nothing's happenstance, but it's not haphazard either. It's got a trajectory. It's got a direction, right? So the hand of providence in your life has a direction to it, has a purpose to it. So you should next be asking, what's the purpose, right? What are God's purposes? Principle number two, 
God's purposes are always moving toward redemption. Always moving toward redemption. Let me unpack this for you a little bit. Uh, do y'all remember this, this book that came out about 15 years ago, sold a few copies called The Purpose Driven Life? All right, by a few copies, I mean like a billion. Anyone remember the first sentence of that book? It's not about you, right? I'm kind of amazed Rick Warren sold that many copies by starting a book out that way. It's not about you, right? I'm like, I don't want to read this. <laughs> Who wants to read that? It's not about you. If we're honest, we don't want to read this, but it's true. But here's the thing as I thought about that sentence. I, I would actually, I, I would add something to it, honestly. I would say it's not about you, but it does involve you. It's not about you, but it does involve you. Trace the purposes of God throughout Scripture, and here's what you'll find. Number one, they're always centered on the glory of God. But number two, the way that God is glorifying himself is by redeeming creation. There is a trajectory and a purpose to where things are going. It's always toward redemption. The Old Testament, it was always moving toward Christ. In the New Testament and in our day, it's always moving toward Christ in his second coming. You see, there's an arrow facing this direction. We are on the move, and the movement of God is always for his glory, but it's always toward redemption, you see. Stories of redemption at the macro level and the micro level. Now, I want to dig into the word redemption because it's a powerful and sometimes misunderstood word. You look it up in a dictionary, you study it theologically, here's what you're going to come to. You're going to come to this idea of something being brought back to its intended purpose, its intended use. You're going to redeem something. So something that's been broken is fixed so it can operate again. Something that has been misused is restored back to the purpose for which it was designed, you see. Something is bought back in exchange for something that it was intended for all along. That's the idea of redemption. So you might say it this way. God's purposes are not about your comfort. They're about your redemption. Which one would you rather have? You might think you want the comfort. You really want redemption. God's Purposes in the world are not about the happiness of the world. So the narrative that we hear all the time, well, as long as you're happy, as long as you're happy, as long as everybody's happy, then we're in good shape. No, it's better than that. God's purposes are not the happiness of the world. It's the redemption of the world. God's purposes are not the incremental improvement of his creation. It's another narrative we hear all the time. Society's moving forward, you know, technology, you know, the way we view people and, you know, the way we're helping people and engaging, we're incrementally moving forward. That's not the best of God's design. The best of God's design is not the incremental improvement of creation, but the redemption of creation. Now, this plays out, as I mentioned, at the macro level across the cosmos and where we're heading in Revelation 21, 22, but it plays out at the micro level in individual human lives and in individual human stories. Esther is exhibit one. Think about Esther. I don't want you to think about the, just the beautiful queen. I want you to think about a young girl who lost her parents somehow that we don't know was raised by an uncle and then wrongly and forcibly taken out of that situation and into the arms of a man who did not really care for her except for what she could give him. You see the brokenness in that story? And she had no choice in the matter. And yet, God is about to do a mighty work of redemption in her heart, in her life, 
that is tied to his greater work of redemption across the pages of the whole scripture, you see. The Jewish people needed to be saved in order for Messiah to eventually come. The only way they were going to be saved was that God intervened. He could have done that in a lot of different ways. He chose this young girl's life, redeeming her story so she could be a part of a greater story of redemption. Now, this is where it gets real for you and me. This is honestly, this is where I've been like this last couple of weeks thinking about this passage. What pieces of my story is God redeeming so that he can use them the way he intended them all along? What pieces of your story, what parts of your life, what brokenness or what strengths that are maybe misused that he would redirect, what way is he gonna take your family, your culture, your environment, your strengths, your abilities, and redeem those and use them for his glory for such a time as this. Who knows? He knows. He knows. So here's what I would wish, Lord willing, by the power of the Spirit speaking through this text this morning, here is what I would wish for you, that you would understand that the ultimate purpose of redemption is the glory of God. God receives glory when broken pieces are redeemed and he desires to use those pieces for his glory in other works of redemption, you see. So here's the question, and this is kind of where I want to lead us as we start to wrap things up. I'm going to give you something to think about. I'm going to give you something to do and even some space and time to reflect is I want you to think about this question in your own life. What will you do with the time you've been given In what ways would you be willing for God to use your story, as small as it may seem to you, as a part of the greater narrative? And I think the common tie is going to be redemption, you see. Now, there's a lot of ways that redemption can happen. We know in Scripture, it all points and culminates in one man, in Jesus Christ. The Redeemer, we call him. Esther's life pointed forward to Jesus. David's life, Moses' life, Abraham's life, all the prophets pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus came to redeem us the only way that was possible, living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserved, being raised back up to life so that we could experience new life. That's the gospel. And so here's what happens. When Jesus comes and enters a person's life, and I'm not just talking about the initial point of salvation. I'm talking to those of you that are in the room that have been Christians for 40 years, 50 years, however long you've been a believer in Christ. Here's what's happening in you right now. Redemption is happening. Here's what God is doing. He's taking your natural strengths, your abilities, the place that he's put you in. He is snapping them into place so that you may live out your intended purpose. You see this on every page of scripture. You remember Zacchaeus, by the way? You know, Zacchaeus had a different story than Esther's, but his was broken too. You see, Zacchaeus was really great at making money, but he did it all the wrong ways. You know, he like, he, he, he took it from people. He stepped over people. He kind of swindled people and he became a very wealthy man that way. Jesus entered his life. What happened? Well, the natural strengths of Zacchaeus were snapped back into place and God said, oh, you're gonna now be a generous maker of money. You see, Zacchaeus is still good at making money. Now he's generous with it. He not only gave what he took, he gave even more. Think about Peter's life. Peter's a fisherman. God says, I'm I'm gonna redeem that. You know, not bad to be a fisherman. I'm gonna give you something better. You're still gonna be a fisherman, but different kind now. 
Paul. Paul had, man, Paul had this gift of words. He was a great theologian. He studied, but it was misdirected. See, he was persecuting the true God in the form of Jesus Christ. God comes in his life. Christ comes in his life, says, I'm snapping that back into place. You're now going to be the greatest evangelist that this world has, has, has had to this point. You see how God does this? And he's choosing to redeem creation through these individual acts of redemption in our lives that center around Jesus Christ. That's the story. Are you going to enter in it, right? Are you going to step in and say, that's my story too? So here's what I want to invite you to do. You've got a little bookmark in your program. And, you know, you know some of this are going to, some of you will connect with this. Others of you may not. But, but I want to encourage you to do some of this bookmark. Pull, pull it out if you would. Just take a look at it at least. On one side of the bookmark, you've got this verse that I think the whole book of Esther hinges on, verse 14. On the other side of the bookmark, you've got some blank space. And I want to give you some time. And here's the question I want you to reflect on. It's actually a couple of questions. And I'll I'll kind of spend some time giving some examples. But go ahead and start thinking now about how you might utilize that space. If God would reveal to you a way that he wants you to enter in. Uh, What places in your life are God's redemptive purposes being played out? How might he use you in his redemptive work in places around you? Uh, Let me give you some categories here. Some of you are really good at something. And uh, you've primarily been using that talent, that gift, whatever it is, just for your own identity, just for your own, you know, acknowledgement and comfort and status, whatever. And honestly, there's just not a whole lot wrong with that. But God would wish to redeem that ability for a higher purpose. And maybe that talent or that skill or that ability, whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm great at business or I'm great at networking or I'm, I'm great at hospitality or I just, I never met a stranger. Whatever it is, how would God redeem that in your life? and use it in a new way. Uh, Let me give you another category, all right? Some of you are in a really hard place right now. There's something going on in your life, and you know who you are because your brain goes there as soon as I say this. It's not everybody in the room, but it's a good good number of you. There's a a hardship, there's a struggle. You know, you're you're, you're carrying something like Frodo was. And you, you would in your own natural flesh say, I wish this had never come to me. And I get that. I want to invite you this morning to imagine maybe it's come to you with purpose. And I can't tell you what that purpose is. And honestly, you may never actually get a clear communication from God on what the purpose is, but would you be open to do this with it and say, who knows, but I've been given this for such a time as this. And that hardship, that struggle might need to be what you need to write down on that bookmark. Others of you, there's a relationship in your life. And this, there's a person that's just come in your life for some reason. You know, maybe it's a person that brings you joy. Maybe it's a person that sucks joy out of you. But that person's in your life. And maybe this morning you'd think, well, maybe I need to consider that God's put this person in my life for such a time as this. Whatever that might cost me. Whatever that might look like. Others of you, you may have a business, you may have a career, you may have an opportunity, you may have a position of influence, you may have a leadership, you may have a team that reports to you, and, and you would say, God, what would it look like for me to leverage this for such a time as this? How might redemption happen in the lives of these people that I lead or in this organization for the good of the earth according to what God's plan is? Maybe you've never thought about it that way. Would you enter into that part of your story? I could go on and on. There's so many different categories out there. 
I invite all of us just to consider what might God be up to in my story. And maybe it'll come to you this morning, maybe it won't. But let me give you just a minute of quiet reflection as you consider that and then I'll wrap up the service in a moment. Go ahead, think about that now. Maybe you don't know what that is right now. That's okay. Just keep this question open in your mind as we walk through this journey of Esther together. In fact, the reason that we designed this as a bookmark is we thought, you know, some of you might want to keep this in the story of Esther as we walk through page by page. And every week you, you see that thing that you wrote down or maybe you see that blank space. And I actually believe for most of you in the room that the same spirit that authored this text is going to speak to you and open your eyes to things that you can't see and invite you into this story. He's going to say, this is a purpose behind that relationship or that circumstance or that opportunity. I honestly believe he's going to do that. You know, we're reminded in verse 14, God could have brought salvation to the Jews through any means he wanted, yet he chose to redeem the story of one young girl and use that. See, he's going to do that in lives in this room. He will. Whatever you wrote down or whatever you will write down, here's what it has in common. God has put you at a place in relationships, in a workplace, in a neighborhood, your heritage, your background, your strengths and skills. He's done all that. He's brought you to a place where you enter into that, where you begin to see where you are with eyes of faith. And I want to pray to that end. So let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for loving us enough to send your Son And Father, here's what I know. There's so many different opportunities that go through our mind when we're faced with a question like this. And we need your guidance to understand what you're speaking in and and what's just other things. And so God, would you speak to us clearly? I pray that and I have confidence through your spirit that you'll do that in this body. And I also know something that we need to look past Esther to your son, Jesus Christ, if we want to move into these hard, difficult places. And I pray, Father, that we would begin as even next week as we enter back into the story of Esther, that as we see her, she would not just be a motivational character for us, but that she would point us to the true Savior so that we can depend upon him as we enter in these spaces that you've called us to. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and in the name of Jesus that we hope and in his name that we proclaim. Amen. Amen.
Have a great, great Sunday. We'll see you next week.